Grand Rude Comedy Rascast Talking about important stuff and hopefully making you laugh. And if you don't laugh, well, at least you learned about something important. And if you don't care about that, well, that's on you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Grasscast. I am your host, Chris Blackwood, and we have an amazing show lined up for you today. Today, we'll be diving deep into the issue of voters' rights, which are very important rights to have. If you believe in democracy and equity and just generally aren't a jerk, today's show may be the show for you. We also have a special guest from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law that we will be speaking with. In addition to that, we have clips from our fundraiser comedy show with Grassroots Comedy DC, which served as a fundraiser for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And last but not least, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Robert Mack from robertmack.com as the sugar to help the medicine go down. Hey, Robert, are you there? Hey. Yes, I'm hey. here. Hi, Chris. Thanks again for having me. I'm of looking course. forward to this jam-packed episode, and I'm ready for, uh, in the theme of lawyers, I'm wearing my briefs right now. Oh. You see what I did there? I see what you did there. Yes. That's great. My briefs. And speaking of brief, let's jump into our interview. So we are now welcomed here by Damon Hewitt. Damon is the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Hey, Damon. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And Robert, are you here as well still? I'm here as well. Thanks, Damon, for joining us today. This is an important topic, and we're glad to, that you can shed some light on it for us. Thanks, Robert. Happy to be here. So, Damon, in your own words, who are you, what do you do, and what does the Lawyers Committee do? I am a, some people call a race man or a race person. I believe in racial justice, and I think that means we have to see race and understand difference and possibilities for unity and solidarity in order to do the work that we do as civil rights lawyers. I work for some president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. It's my formal title. And I get to help make possibilities happen for the communities we serve. I have a bunch of hungry, amazing lawyers whom uh, I think you know some of them, and great policy wonks as well, and people who do outreach in communities. And we try to do good things, great things when we can have impact and have some fun doing it because there should be joy amidst the struggle. That's great. I never thought about fun being a part of uh, fighting for civil rights and justice. So that's, that's fantastic. Sounds like the full package. Let's get right into it, Damon. I want to start by chatting quickly about the name of your organization. As you may recall from my set during our benefit show with you all last month, I reflected that leading with the Lawyers Committee seems to bury the lead. Maybe you might want to think about some restructuring when working to raise funds. Here's a clip to catch our listeners up to speed. Give it up once again for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, everybody. What a mouthful that name is. What a mouthful. It's a, it's a great title, but maybe, I don't know, maybe shorten it. Um, and maybe also, I don't know, don't bury the lead, right? <laughs> Lawyers committee is what it is for short. Do you know how strange it is to say you're doing a fundraiser for the lawyers committee? <laughs> Save the lawyers isn't something you really hear a lot of these days. I'd like to see that march, right? Or their slogan be, we're here. We, we're clear, we made a lot of really good decisions in college. 
and now make a decent wage, have decent job security, but we'd like more of it. Don't pay attention to the other causes. Uh, so I was thinking, maybe some rebranding, okay? Uh, for you guys, I, I was thinking about just some ways to like move the words around. So this is for you, take it if you'd like. Just make sure, you know, I get acknowledged for it. Um, uh, the National Organization of Civil Rights Attorneys Countering Racism or No Cracker. Um, <laughs> just a thought, just a thought. Work on that branding. So what are your thoughts? Will No Cracker be the new Lawyers Committee? No, that's certainly not, uh, not going to be a name that we uh, choose if we have a different name. But like, there's a, uh, a legacy reason for the name. You know, President Kennedy in 1963, at the height of the civil rights movement, knew that we had you know, some civil rights organizations, not as many as we have today. We also had his brother, who was the attorney general. But he knew that we needed what you call private attorneys general, lawyers in the private bar at the nation's leading law firms to step up, not just be smart and you know, serve your corporate clients and make money, but also to do a whole lot of good with your skill. And so he and other leading lawyers asked the private bar to step up. And that's exactly what they did by forming what was at the time an integrated group and a literal committee of lawyers. We, of course, you know, almost 60 years later have evolved into a full-fledged uh, civil rights and racial justice organization with our own staff and, and infrastructure and what have you. But we still work with those law firms in the private bar. We help to leverage our impact and we are pretty darn prolific as far as the number of cases we file and the success rate on top of that. Gotcha. Okay. I get that that, that does seem like a whole lot to pack into a title. Whenever you have more than one prepositional phrase in a name, it can be a Bit of a challenge, but we have, you know, an identity and a brand uh, as a lawyer's committee, at least, but never want to bury the lead. Open to suggestions from you and your audience. Ooh, that's exciting. Maybe we can have a follow up interview. We can do a little bit of a vote. Maybe the, the audience can weigh in. Robert, do you have any questions? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, Damon, that was a, a great answer. Very well thought out. But I'm going to switch gears 180 and go back to when I was a kid growing up. It seemed that lawyers and also dentists Lawyers and dentists were always made fun of. They were the most hated professions. Why is that? And how are you working to solve that problem? Well, look, I know exactly why. You know, I was uh, taught in law school that the law is indeterminate. It could cut either way. You could represent a client on either side. So the law is an instrument, or even, you know, our statutes, our, you know, constitution even. You know, we like to think of it as having a certain, uh, embodying a certain set of values or even morality but that's not always the case. It simply reflects the thinking of some people, typically men, you know, of a certain, you know, race ethnicity at a particular time in terms of founding fathers, so to speak, or in terms of who has power at any given point in time. And you know, there's certainly laws, civil rights statutes that were designed to protect what people once called discrete insular minorities or now people of color or BIPOC folks. But the, the idea is that some of those laws have also been hijacked by people who don't share our values to challenge diversity in higher education, for example. So knowing that the law can cut either way, we have to inject some reality, some serious morality, a sense of values, and frankly, a compass, so to speak, into what we do. It's not enough just to be a lawyer. You have to actually be a well-rounded person and individual and bring your whole self to the party if you're going to do the type of work that we do, when that's not part of the formula, 
lawyers simply can be used as tools. Charles Hamilton Houston, a famous civil rights pioneer, once said that lawyers can be either social engineers or parasites on society. Now, that's a pretty stark contrast. There's a whole lot of in-between, but we never want to be on that back end of that spectrum. And so we love to push ourselves at our organization, but also push lawyers nationwide to think about progressive social engineering in a positive way that actually helps propel our nation forward in a more inclusive and just manner. Wow, thank you. Another great answer. But you did not respond about the part about uh, Dennis. So I'm going to give you nine out of 10 on that one. But thank you. That was great. That, that was the most thorough response to making fun of lawyers that I've ever heard. And both of my parents are lawyers. So I appreciate that. On to some serious questions. What are the lessons to be learned from the 2020 election, specifically on rules, procedures enacted by states that made it easier for Americans to vote? I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on this. Well, I think, you know, in terms of rules and procedures that made it easier, the first lesson is democracy works when you let it, right? If we actually make it easier for people to vote, they will. Over 100 million people cast ballots before election day. So there was this kind of protracted election season, the early voting, the drop boxes. Now, of course, these were largely in place for safety precautions, but it was really following the example of many states and jurisdictions that had those kinds of procedures already. If they had never been done before anywhere, it would have been difficult to figure out what do we do on the fly. But the fact is there was already a roadmap that led to a game plan that made it easier for states that ordinarily wouldn't have allowed those other means of voting to do so. So democracy works when we let it, and it didn't have a partisan advantage. You know, People on both sides of the spectrum use these expanded means of voting. I think that's the biggest lesson. But the second lesson is on the flip side with some of the challenges that I think we'll talk about shortly to valid election results, we realize also that democracy is more fragile than we like to admit. And the apparatus and the infrastructure of, of democracy you know, has been under attack. We've seen that, even though it's been resilient, it certainly has been under attack. So its fragility requires our care and feeding and attention consistently. Today's episode is brought to you by Dominion Voting Machines. Dominion Voting Machines a leading supplier of election technology since 2003 and leading scapegoat for anti-democracy fascists since 2020. So next question, Damon, even though Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election didn't work, he did manage to convince nearly one third of Americans that the election was stolen by simply repeating it, stating the claims well before votes were even cast Now, we also saw a similar approach with the recent attempt to recall Kevin Newsom, with his opponent, Larry Elder, taking a similar approach to discredit the election before it even began. Is this a new political practice that's here to stay? And if so, what, if anything, can be done about it? Well, look, I hope this practice of lying about valid election results is not here to stay. But I take an optimistic view. I think about, you know, the boy who cried wolf. And we all know that story you know, after a while, people stop believing that boy. And I think in this case, that's even more likely because these kind of liars, you know, most liars, frankly, they don't just tell one lie. They tell multiple lies and they start to implode like a house of cards. I mean, if you believe Trump and his supporters, he'll be back in the White House uh, as president before the end of Biden's first term, right? Mm-hmm. So when that doesn't happen, well, that wakes some people up. Um, the lie that people, you know, 
you know, had a right to or could stop the counting of ballots on January 6th. You know, that's landed some people in prison. And a few dozen of them have been sued by us at the Lawyers Committee. So good luck to them. So, you know, I think that eventually the lies start to implode. The question is how much pain will be inflicted in the meanwhile. Got it. Well, um, hopefully it's not too much. And hopefully the pain, the pain that is inflicted is uh, the pain that you inflict upon those that are, are lying. Legal pain, that is. One of the defendants in our lawsuit regarding the January 6th Capitol insurrection is Roger Stone, the infamous. Uh, apparently, he was served with that lawsuit while he was doing a live radio interview. And he apparently said something to the effect of that he's glad that he was served with a thick stack of papers because he's running out of toilet paper. Or my response to that was, well, I hope you like paper cuts because we're just getting started. Uh, we use heavy bonded paper. And so there's a lot more to come. Uh, justice will be served and it just might hurt. Nice. Zing. That's great. And he's old too. So, you know, he uses the bathroom a lot. Uh, did he respond to that? Not that we have seen, but, you know, we, we can expect, you know, more from him as well. It seems to me that, like, after mosquitoes and gnats and middle schoolers, lawyers, we can be some of God's most annoying little creatures. You know what I mean? Like, there's even a verse in the Bible about lawyers. It says, woe to you lawyers, which I think is Jesus just being like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, like, shut up already. Because that's the nature of the job, you know? We have to be adversarial, you know, we can be competitive, we can be zealous, you know, which is like just a fancy word for anal, you know? We could be know-it-alls. That's why I won't date a lawyer, because like we can't both know it all. What is your response to voter suppression legislation in states like Texas and all the other states? I'm not gonna list all of them either. And more important, what can we do to fight back? In my opinion, it, it seems like everyone should vote except maybe certain cases, but it seems like these laws are making it so nobody can vote except certain people of a, of a certain type. So how can we fix that? I think our response to put in a nutshell is, you know, just stop it, right? Stop it as far as stop pretending, stop with the myths and the lies. And I think the biggest myths and lies are that, number one, that the motivations of these bills in places like Georgia, Texas, and, and, and Florida, uh, and many others, are not motivated by any sort of racial discrimination, uh, right? That they certainly, uh, it's a lie that they have no discriminatory effect. There's this notion that is actually gaining some purchase in jurisprudence, the decisions from the Supreme Court and the courts of appeals around the country, that if a measure is overtly partisan, that's okay. And if it's partisan, it's probably not discriminatory. That's kind of a, a, a nutshell. You know, the Supreme Court has said in terms of gerrymandering, we've heard about racial gerrymandering, but probably a more common form that people know about is partisan gerrymandering, that the party in power will draw lines to its advantage. The Supreme Court has said under federal law, that's OK, although it is prohibited under the laws of some states. The problem, however, is when you advance partisan interests on the backs of voters of color in ways that either uniquely or distinctly disadvantage them, that has a discriminatory effect. And we believe that violates federal law. And so when we say stop it, we mean stop pretending that just because something is partisan, that it can't be discriminatory. You can't use that as kind of a shield to insulate these discriminatory measures. I have a follow-up question. If, if we say just stop, uh, who, who are we saying this to? Because uh, there are voters who are already swayed. 
there are judges who are in place, right. there are lawmakers who are already doing this. If we go all the way to the top, what's the top? The Supreme right. Court, which is already stacked in a certain way? Well, look, the, the, the court, uh, you know, the way it's stacked now is, is certainly it's a tough go for the issues that we care about. But I would say to your question, the first audience are the state legislators and the secretaries of state and the governors who signed these bills into law. Really, they're at the, the epicenter. Some of them, even those who understood that uh, former President Trump and his minions were trying to hijack the election, some of them have been quite welcoming to some of these measures that we consider voter suppression. So they're one audience. But I think the bigger audience is the broader populace. You know, it's time for us to really start to shift the narratives. You know, it's very common every major election cycle to hear PSAs and celebrities and others encouraging people to vote. What I've come to realize, uh, Robert, is that that's cute, but that's insufficient. What we really have to do is move people not just to encourage others to vote, but to actually move people to actively defend the right to vote, to have your default not be that, well, if you're going to vote, you have to prove X, Y, Z, but that the default be that everyone who meets minimum eligibility, which essentially means age and that you're alive and registered, is able to cast a ballot, except in very limited circumstances. And we try to limit those circumstances as much as possible, right? We have to shift the narrative uh, of what's the norm and what's acceptable and what is consistent with our notions of democracy. Things haven't changed that much. Like even my own children, right? I have I show them things all the time. We live not too far from Frederick Douglass' house. I took them to Frederick Douglass' house and they saw pictures of Frederick Douglass and they were like, this is the most photographed man of the 19th century? I was like, yes. They was like, he taught himself how to read and got himself an education and freed himself from slavery. I was like, yeah. They was like, he never thought to get a haircut? I was like, you <laughs> fucking... But in their defense, they also think that Harriet Tubman is the first black metro driver. <laughs> I mean, they so young, they hit Underground Railroad. They're like, but that is the Underground Railroad. I was like, it did not exist. So I have another follow-up question or an FU question. Speaking of shifting the narrative, I completely agree wholeheartedly and uh, would love to see that done and have, have seen efforts but the challenge that I see as well is that there is an effort on both sides to change that narrative. Mm -hmm. So as you're working to change it on one, you are battling a counter narrative, which is circling around in the echo chambers of people who are on that side of that particular belief, say the belief that the last election was blatantly stolen and was the most unfair election in human history. And the, narr the attempt to change the narrative around that seems, it, it almost seems like it's just destined to fail because the people who are receiving that counter message, they don't even have access a lot of the time to that alternative message, or they're, they're at least not going to the places, they're not exploring those channels. So what do you say to that? The battle is very difficult and truth has a uh, distinct disadvantage. Truth has one hand tied behind its back because there's such a thing as negativity bias where putting out information that makes people worry or provokes fear actually has been shown to mobilize and motivate people in ways that the simple honest truth often does not. So we are at a disadvantage, but I think what we have to realize first and foremost is that even with favorable legislation that we're still fighting for tooth and nail at the national level and also at, at, at the state level, even with those provisions, some of which we've had before, like the heart of the Voting Rights Act, which was, which was gutted 
by the Supreme Court in 2013, that's not enough to sustain us in the midst of what's inherently a culture war. When you look at a state like Texas, think about the things happening right now. There's a voter suppression bill. There is uh, legislation that is limiting reproductive rights. There's also a tax on what is being labeled critical race theory, but it's really, in fact, just teaching the truth to students in K through 12 schools. Mm-hmm. You know, when there is a motivation of fear, when there is a growing electorate that may have different values or different ideologies, we see these reversions to culture wars and mm-hmm. pressure points. So the first thing we have to do is realize that this is part of a culture war and that if you f- try to fight a culture war in a congruent way, a parallel way, you actually cannot win because of that negativity bias. So we have to realize what it is. We have to really rally base. And I don't mean in terms of, you know, lowercase d democratic politics or pure politics. I mean, rally the base and expand that circle of human concern so that people of conscience mm. actually are willing to both speak up, which we see a lot more of, at least, at least in the Twitterverse, but speak up and speak out in the places that matter, in their school boards, mm-hmm. speak out to their city councils and county commissions. And it doesn't mean if you speak out, you have to be a designated leader or run for office, but we need to lift up those voices, the people who are too often silent, uh, pressed or not, we need everyone to lift up their voices. I do believe that there are more people of conscience who want to do right and do good and who actually share the values that we do than there are people who don't. But it's a really a question of getting to them and giving them a form and a platform and a comfort level that their voice actually matters. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Today's episode is brought to you by Tiki Torches. Tiki Torches, designed to be used for fun and inclusive ambiance in outdoor settings and by no means were ever intended to be used by Nazis. Seriously though, they love Jewish people and black people and love hanging out with these communities in the outdoors surrounded by tiki torches. But not in a creepy way, in a fun, inclusive, outdoor barbecue kind of way. So just to reiterate, Nazis are bad, tiki torches are good, and they love minorities. You know, it's just, it's just so, like, it's so funny to me as a kid from this area, like driving down Connecticut Avenue and seeing like, like wanted signs for like white domestic terrorists. Like as a Middle Eastern dude, like that's funny. Cause like now white people, y'all consider like the terrorists. Like now my uncles are like, finally we can go to the airport. <laughs> you know, worse than January 6th, what was, what was worse than that for me was uh, January 3rd. Do you guys remember January 3rd? A lot of people forgot about that day because January 6th kind of like overshadowed it. January 3rd in DC, I got a phone call from one of my close friends. He was like, hey, yo, son, you heard about the Proud Boys? They about to pull up to DC, our city. I was like, yo, is that like a new musical or something? He's like, nah, bro, it's a white nationalist group. They all write through your Googles. I never heard of them, so I did my Googles, and I found out the Proud Boys, they're not a good bunch. You know, I, my generation, I grew up on KKK. I never heard of the Proud Boys. They're like KKK 2.0. White nationalists, they all right, they misogynistic. I'm like, these guys, are, these guys are bad news, man. And I did further research, and I found out the leader of the Proud Boys is an Afro-Cuban Latino. His name is Enrique Terrio. I said, what the fuck? As a Latino, that shit fucked me up. I said, damn, son. 
Latinos, we really out here taking white people's jobs. <laughs> like, we gotta show you how to be racist too, like, damn, bro. What is at the core of the voter rights legislation that is currently before Congress? So the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment Act and the For the People Act, what are they and what is at stake? With the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act, the idea is to not only return to what we had before the Supreme Court's decision in the Shelby County, Alabama case in 2013, which gutted the part of the Voting Rights Act that required certain jurisdictions that had a history of discrimination to submit any voting changes for what's called pre-clearance or prior approval, but the idea is to even get back better. So in the current legislation, as it's been introduced, there are a few different ways to do it. First, there is a formula where states and jurisdictions that have a documented history of discrimination in the last 25 years, which is fairly recent in the course of human events, that they actually are required to submit any change to polling places, to polling hours, to voting eligibility and the like submit that for prior approval, either to the U.S. Department of Justice or to a three-judge uh, panel of, of judges in, in D.C., three-judge court. But also jurisdictions that engage in what are called known practices, practices that are frankly known to limit voter participation. They're required to get pre-approval as well. And then finally, there's another piece, which is jurisdictions that engage in practices that may overlap with those other categories, but that have what you call a retrogressive effect that make it harder to vote, for, especially for certain groups by race and ethnicity, they can be sued in federal court. So that's what the John Lewis bill as it's currently comprised would do. The For the People Act has actually undergone a bit of a shift. It's still there, uh, so to speak, but there's a compromise. Some people call it the Manchinized bill and named after Joe, Senator Joe Manchin who sponsored it. It's called the Freedom to Vote Act. It actually is a surprisingly good bill. For some, it does have a provision for voter ID, which is usually a kind of a no-no in terms of making it harder for people to vote. But that provision is limited to jurisdictions that already have voter ID laws. And in fact, in certain states it actually that have voter ID laws, it actually requires expansion of the forms of ID that are necessary. So if, if you're in a rural community in Georgia and it's hard to get to the DMV because let's say it's 50, 60 miles away, and you, it's just far away from where you work or where your family is, you may not have that government-issued ID, but you may have other forms of ID, right? If you're a student, you may have student ID, right? So this bill makes those kind of forms of, of ID eligible, so it actually expands things without making it worse, expands them in some states without making it worse in others. It also has some other requirements in terms of the minimum number of days and hours for early voting, and also creates a nationwide right to vote by mail which is something we were talking about earlier. So basically you have these two bills. One essentially ensures fairness and racial justice, mm -hmm. at least to the extent possible. The other, just plain and simple, makes it easier to vote. When you mm -hmm. combine the two, that's part of a regime or an overall formula. Knowing again that no one, no one loss, uh, law can make everything better, but in combination, these provisions give communities a fighting chance to actually cast a ballot that will be counted. And is there a reason, Damon, that they're not consolidated? I, uh -huh. I, I have a better understanding now that you've described what they are, like the, the John Lewis. We should shorten the names, too, and call it the, <laughs> the J. Lou Vora. I understand uh, that Sketchy. they're aiming on different things. Are they kept separately so that they can possibly pass easier? So, look, you know, the John Lewis bill 
really has most of the components are very similar to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, as it's been subsequently amended, most notably in 1982 under Ronald Reagan, and also in 2006 under George W. Bush, Republican presidents. In fact, I should, I should mention that the last time the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized by Congress, because usually it lasts for about 25 years in terms of its, uh, its provisions, it was a 98 to zero vote in favor in the Senate. Now it's hard to even have a conversation. So, you know, partisanship has certainly taken over, you know, in, in very wild ways uh, in, in recent years. But, you know, what I would say is that bill stands alone probably because of the fact that the Voting Rights Act has always stood alone. The For the People Act, now the Freedom to Vote Act, has some provisions I will share in this, I guess, the earlier form that some called more partisan. There were some provisions uh, about uh, campaign uh, finance that, you know, some, you know, didn't like and said that's too Democrat infused or too partisan, and also a provision about redistricting. So those provisions aren't necessarily at the heart of the civil rights implications. And I think it's actually appropriate, Robert, to keep those bills separate, although components of both together can make a big difference. Okay, so we'll keep them separate for now. Final follow-up question. If you were trapped on a desert island and you could only bring one of those laws with you, <laughs> would it be the J. Lou Vora or the For the People Act? I would actually bring the John Lewis bill. And I say that because if we don't focus on the racially disparate impacts and just focus on things at a kind of facially neutral level, we start to gloss over inequality. But when we do, Robert, focus on the racially disparate impacts, it's kind of a lens through which to view a vast array of inequality and opportunity, potential opportunity, right? If we know that it's desperately harder for some people to vote, we will then, as a remedy, require and adopt measures that actually have the effect of making it easier for everyone. So I think that the John Lewis book, I had to choose one, but that's an impossible distinction politically. But, you know, since you asked the question, I answered it. We ask the impossible questions here. That's, that's our job. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that a knock? Chris, uh, this is your neighbor, Jerry, Jerry Mander. Um, oh, Jerry. Hi, hi Jerry. Uh, how can I help you? Oh, I just want to let you know that I'm going to take some of the apples from that apple tree. You know, that's on that's on your yard. Yeah, that beautiful really? apple tree. That's my favorite apple tree. Yeah, but you're really not using it. I am using it. I'm going to change Jerry. our our, uh, our property line. Hmm. And so I'm going to kind of take over that section and that really horrible tree that's got all the bugs in it that used to be on my property, we're gonna swing the line around so that's on your property now to mix, to mix things up. That's strange, Jerry, and egregious. Are you even allowed to do that? And what are you even doing here? How did you even become a part of this conversation? Um, well, my name's Jerry Mander and I'm your neighbor and I'm able to, mm. to do this pretty much without any, uh, any reason at all. It seems to be uh, written in the law, but I just wanna let you know that uh, uh, thanks for the apples, they're great. Okay, you're not welcome. Please give them back. Chris, it sounds like you need a lawyer. I think I do. I think I do. Yeah, Jerry was not expecting a lawyer. Uh, in fact, the head of the uh, Civil Rights Committee, uh, Lawyer Civil Rights Committee to be here. So um, jokes on that guy, hopefully. Jerry, did you leave? He left. I think he left. Robert, are you Are you there? I'm, I'm back. I Yeah, I stepped out for just a second. I had to... Did I miss anything? Yeah, the, the weirdest thing. I'll fill you in later. Just just watch out for my neighbor next time you come over. He's a weirdo. That guy, Jerry, he just brought over a great apple pie. Oh, he brought that to you? Oh, yes. oh my goodness. Okay. All right.
God bless yeah. America. In the face of current redistricting efforts in states across the country, how is the Lawyers Committee working to ensure fair processes with strong engagement from communities of color? Damon? Great question. For the gerrymanders and gerrymanderers out there, we have a multifaceted approach. You know, first there is data analysis. You know, a lot of census data is now available, but the ordinary human being, you know, doesn't have easy access to these huge data files and, and know how to crunch the numbers. So we actually have not only a crew of data analysts at our organization, but we also have been training through our participatory redistricting project, uh, a few dozen students, uh, some of them grad students and, and also some undergrads as well, to work with communities throughout the country to help assist in this data analysis effort. The second piece is that we're doing a lot of public education. Redistricting is kind of like that muscle that you don't use very much. And if you don't use it, it kind of atrophies and you have to build it back. That's mm -hmm. hard to do. So we're kind of part of that sustained effort where we have some expertise. We have people who've seen, you know, not to age them or date them, but, you know, three or four redistricting cycles, which happen every 10 years. So we have that expertise to help with the public education with local community groups and also individuals. We also, you know, we're doing all of this working with law firms as well to help with the prep. We're preparing community members to testify in their own voice before either an independent redistricting commission or their state legislature. Usually it's one of the two in each state that decides how the lines are drawn for various uh, races and, and positions. And then finally, we'll be ready to sue because that's what we do in large part. But there's a whole lot that comes before that. The work that happens before litigation is so important in redistricting because it helps to build the record of all of the alternative maps. So it helps to build a record that before gerrymander changed lines to take those apples, that there were other alternatives that wouldn't have hurt Chris quite as much, right? So showing the existence of these less discriminatory alternatives is actually important for the litigation. And so it's not just a false exercise and lift up your voice, just lift up voices. That's important in of itself, but it's also important to set that baseline uh, that there are other alternatives and that can be used in the, in the lawsuit to help succeed if we have to sue. I have a quick follow-up question. What is the rationale or the, the precedent for gerrymandering in the first place? The precedent that allows it to happen or that- so, That somebody in our country said, all right, we're gonna chop up and reline all of these districts? Uh, in order. Gerrymandering is kind of a, a bastardization of the normal process. And the principle is they call it one man, one vote, but we say one person, one vote, right? that everybody's vote should count equally. That's why, you know, you have this kind of balance. In the Senate, you have two votes. It seems unequal, two votes for every state regardless of size. But in the House of Representatives, you want to see those districts drawn to where there's exactly the same number of people in every district. So if a state gains population, they may get an extra district. If a state loses population, they're going to lose a congressional district. And it's basically a zero-sum thing. So you're going to have a total of 435 in the U.S. House of Representatives throughout the country. And it's all about division, about, well, not about division, but about math, I should say, about how you divide up those seats in a way where you try to have exactly the same number of people in each district as much as possible. The same principle applies to state and local jurisdictions, whether it be a school board, where there's districts or a county commission or a town council, the requirement isn't as exacting that it has to be exactly the same. It has to be close to or roughly the same, I, I would say, in, in, in late parlance. 
But that's the baseline, one person, one vote. The gerrymandering comes in where within that framework, one says, how can I draw these lines to advantage my political party? Or how can I draw these lines to pack all the black people into one district so they have any influence in another? Or how do I draw these lines to separate all the brown people in a different district so they have a little bit of influence, but not enough to make a difference? That's where you get the partisan and racial gerrymandering that is, I believe, a bastardization of the baseline one person, one vote principle. It's like, how can I solve this math problem while also disrespecting black people? It's kind of like that. Today's episode is brought to you by Woke White Men. Woke White Men, proudly protesting against our own demographic without having an identity crisis since the founding of NPR. I have a second level follow-up question, an, an FU2 mm. question. And it's mm. very, very simply, if we get another state, if let's say Washington DC becomes a state, does that change that 435 number? That's a good question. I've heard proposals on both sides that it would be additive and other provisions that perhaps it wouldn't be additive, that it would just be distributive, that we'd have to redistribute. Yeah, I think that redistributive is the more likely path, frankly, constitutionally, without requiring some amendment. So that that does raise the dander of those who think they will somehow lose power. You know, think a state like Texas, which just gained essentially two seats, I believe, in this last, uh, based on the last census, they might not have those two seats if you had a distributive principle with DC being a brand new state. Thank you. That's, that is super topical and helpful to know. In this segment, Robert and I are going to role play, as are you. We are going to role play uh, uncles, uh, myself being Uncle Don, uh, short for Donald, and, or, Robert is going to be Dan, short for Daniel, uh, or the way around. Yeah, and uh, we are going to try to prove you wrong, Damon, about voting rights at Thanksgiving dinner. We will each read an argument against voting rights in favor of uh, voter ID laws, voter redistricting, et cetera, to which you will need to respond while staying in character, while staying at that uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinner. Are you ready? Let's go. So, Damon, the 2020 election was the biggest fraud in U.S. history, and reform must happen for this to be stopped and protect our democracy. It's all over the place, on OAN and Fox News and from Rudy Giuliani and the MyPillow guy himself. Well, clearly, uh, I think, first of all, pass those peas. Uh, second of all, I think you should eat before you drink, because that, I think you've completely mm-hmm. lost perspective. I mean, really, it, I, I don't get as drunk that way, so I don't really see uh, the point. You're really not even good at drinking, are you, Damon? Look. Not very. <laughs> not very. No, but, but, but seriously, you know, I, I think that, look, you, you've got a perspective, but think of it this way. You know, these people are trying to sow division. They literally want to split up communities, even split up families. Like, you're playing right into their hands, but at the end of the day, we're family. At the end of the day, we're going to be here at this table. And what we should be focused on is how can we coexist? How can we be happy? How can we get full with some good food or whatever and you know, watch some football or, you know, kick a ball around or do whatever we're going to do to be a family? I don't think you want to be related to some of these folks who are coming up with all of these conspiracy theories. They're kind of scary people. So why don't you just stick with your real family? I think that's a, a better look for you. 
Well, what about uh, all the voting machines? That I don't think that's a conspiracy theory because it said that this is not a conspiracy theory. Okay. Get them, Dan. Get them. And, uh, and what about mail-in voting being rife with fraud or uh, thousands of votes by dead people or voting multiple times? Or, or the, uh, the Jewish laser beams from outer space. I might be mixing that up a little bit with something else, but you get the point. Do you now or have you ever personally known any dead people who have voted? I'm just asking for a friend. I mean, I feel like I know the people that Rudy Giuliani talks about uh, and my pillow guy. I, I feel like I know both of them. So knowing people that they know, it's basically the same thing. Yeah, that's like the transitive property of truth. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that really works. You know, sometimes, you know, the best lie is one that takes one incident, one thing that happened ever and multiplies, almost like putting it through a prism to say, look, this can happen everywhere and every day. And, you know, I'm a nonpartisan kind of kind of person. You know, I look at things equally and fairly. But I'll tell you this. There's typically one party that is engaged in this kind of fraud. And it's the same party as the people who are proposing and saying that there's fraud and, and, and fear all around. So they kind of need to look in a mirror a little bit before they start casting aspersions like this. So it's almost like what your therapist calls, you know, projecting. I think that's what you told me about your, your therapist. Oh, is that what that's called? Okay, yeah. good to know. I mean, I hope I can share that in, at a family table, but we talk about it, so. Speaking of uh, projecting, can you project some of the turkey over here, please? Uh, and some of the mashed potatoes? Yeah, sure, I can do that. I can All do right. that. All right, only the white meat though. Now, now what, what's this about the voter ID laws that protect the integrity of our democracy? Why wouldn't we want that? What, what about that? What, why, why would we not have laws that just help protect our freedom as Americans? Oh, no, we, we definitely laws to protect our freedom. First of all, though, you got to pass the whole chicken. Don't just pass the white meat, pass the dark meat, too. Please be, be equal about it. All but right, right. What, what I would say, though, is, you know, look, we use ID all the time for all kinds of things. But let me ask you this. You need a driver's license to drive. But do you get stopped at a checkpoint? every few blocks to see if you actually have a license? I don't think so. If you do, you need a lawyer. Once again, I know I know a guy. Let me know. I know a woman, in fact. She's pretty darn good. It's hard to find a man who wants to date a woman who's been formally trained to argue. <laughs> you know, at first they think it's cute. They're like, oh my gosh, you remind me of Olivia Pope or Gail King or any other professional black women I've ever seen on TV. <laughs> you know, I had a guy say to me, he's like, it's emasculating when you always disagree with me. I'm like, no, it's not. You're fine. <laughs> you know, you're coming at it from this deficit-based approach of like, well, these people are lying. I'm coming at it from a positive approach. These are regular folks just like us. In fact, these folks are us. Because if you don't watch out, all of these restrictions you're talking about, they're going to land right on your lap and they're going to end up stopping you from voting. How would you feel then? I don't think you like it very much. No, my lap's getting kind of full. I've actually unbuckled the top couple of... Uh parts of my belt here because I had so much of Aunt Sarah's uh, mashed potatoes and don't, stuff. Don't unbucket them all the way, Dan. You uh, remember I what happened last year. Okay, yeah. That's what the apple pie is for later. Okay, well, how about this, Damon? The For the People Act is too broad and it seeks to nationalize many democracy reforms that would be better left to the states. Why don't we just leave it to the states? States' rights. States' rights. States' rights. Yeah, I think states' rights are so like, they're so classic. The states' right 
to discriminate and prevent miscegenation. That means, you know, black and white people marrying so much for your girlfriends, guys. Um, states' mm-hmm. rights to say who can go to school together. States' rights to say who can do a podcast together. I'm black. We're related, but I'm black too, even if you're not. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, states' rights <laughs> don't really work out for us too well for the America that we know if we let that be the case. But look, we do need laws to protect and preserve democracy. So why don't we just ask ourselves this simple question? If there's a new law and there's a new proposal, let's just ask ourselves a simple question. Does it make it easier for eligible people to vote or does it make it harder to vote? And if it's the latter, maybe it's not such a good idea. Can we agree on that? <sighs> reluctantly, guess, yes. Re- reluctantly, fine. If it's it's going to make the NPR talking points stop. And, and I'll get, eat the kale. And yeah, in the quinoa. Jeez. It's just, it's right here in front of us. Okay. Well, thanks, Damon. Th- thank you very much uh, for spending time with us this Thanksgiving. We appreciate it, I guess. Thanks. Thanks for the food. It was, uh, it was great. It was pretty good. Can I ask one final last question? Sure. If there's one thing you can tell our listeners that they can do to help in this huge cloud of, of issues that we've brought up. What's one thing? The one thing I would say is this. I think it's, it's it would be foolish to think that everybody's thinking about voting rights and democracy every single day. I get paid to do that, but not everybody does. But I know you think about it when it's an election season or close to election day. And the most frequent thing that we all do is we talk about, I voted. We have the stickers, I voted. Or we encourage other people to vote. Why don't you keep that same energy, but channel it to something slightly different? Can you pivot to, hey, not just encouraging people to vote, but talking about the importance of defending everyone's right to vote? Can you pivot from I voted to actually I helped other people vote in a legal way, of course. Right. So let's just kind of shift our our thinking about voting as everybody should do it on your own, but shift it towards something where we can actually talk about how we defend the right and stand up for each other. And that's the probably the most just and fair thing you could ever do. Well done. Correct. Mostly correct. I would say that first they could come to our shows and listen mm-hmm. to these podcasts uh, to mm-hmm. learn these great things. And then I like yours is a great second thing, which is don't always make it about ourselves. Make it about everyone else in our mm-hmm. country that we are allegedly voting for or with. And, and if there were a third, Damon, might that be to ask our listeners to donate to the Lawyers Committee? Well, you can always do that. We are a nonpartisan and nonprofit organization, which means that we rely on donations to make our work. We, you know, we don't make money from our, our, our lawsuits. We quite often spend more than we bring in on any given suit because we are mission driven. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what we put first. So donations are great. Please visit our website at lawyerscommittee.org, lawyers, plural, committee.org. And we'd be happy to be great stewards of your investment in us and in the communities that we serve. Great. Thank you so much for sharing all your time and your wisdom with us today. I appreciate it. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Damon. This was awesome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for bearing with us. Rule plays and all. All right. That's our show. Thanks again to my co-host Robert Mack and Damon Hewitt from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law for his insight and wisdom. Today's episode featured comedy clips from grassroots comedies, live comedy shows, Comedians you heard from include Janie Tillery, Martin Amini, and Haywood Turnipseed Jr. Also, 
A big thank you to our sound engineer, Emery, for your skills and your patience. Grassroots Comedy has another comedy show at Kramer Books in DuPont Circle coming up on January 26th that you're not going to want to miss. It's also worth mentioning that Grassroots Comedy DC, the entity that brings you the Grasscast, has become a corporation and we are about to become a non-profit entity, finally. What that means is that we are dropping the DC from our name, we are expanding, and we are looking for people to help. For information on upcoming job opportunities with Grassroots Comedy, as well as upcoming shows, events, and other things, please check us out at grassrootscomedy.com. Until next time, this has been The Grasscast.